Welcome to Taking Ship, a guided cruise through dumbest timeline America. I'm Frank Spring, and with me is the notably bearded Ellie Jacobs. Welcome, Ellie. Hey, Frank. As always, it's good to be with you, and we'd like to thank our listeners for their comments, both positive and negative. We noticed that no one tried the experiment of leaving a blank comment. Uh, We do urge you to try to do that, and we also urge you to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at at Taking Ship, and that's ship with a P as in pedantic. Always as in pedantic. So we decided, uh, let's start this week, uh, since we're coming up on the one-year anniversary of Trump's inauguration, uh, or what George W. Bush dubbed as some weird shit, um, we thought, we're, we're not going to, let's not spend too much time on this, but I, I wanted to do an interesting thought experiment. Let's each rank the three worst things that Trump has done, and then let's also both come up with one good thing that he's done. Um, you you want to take a first crack or should These I? Are tougher than the labors of Hercules. Yeah. Uh, the first one, because we're spoiled for choice. And the second one, because I can't think of a single fucking thing. Uh, yeah. if, you would, if you would take a crack at it and give me a chance to try and get my mind around this horrible puzzle, I would really appreciate it. Yeah. So to me, I, again, like there's just, there, there's a, an embarrassment of, of riches for the worst things that he's done. Um, and then there's also the issue of, you know, thing versus just sort of idea that he's brought to the game. Um, I would say that the first and foremost is, um, I mean, just the, the, the stress and the permission he's given for the country to just dig in on the resentment and grievances issue, uh, which is then given permission to the alt-right and other disgusting human beings on the you know, that should be kept in the shadows, giving them permission to kind of come out of the shadows and join the rest of join society somehow. Um, so I think that's first and foremost, uh, even people might call that division, that kind of thing, whatever it might be. I'd say that that's the worst thing that he's done. Second, I would just say, uh, between his continual lying, um, exaggeration, uh, poor management and everything else, uh, is he is, Whatever dignity was lost of the Oval Office during the Clinton years, which is a big thing that George W. Bush ran on, um, and whatever work that George W. Bush and Obama and um, President Obama did over the last 16 years to bring dignity back to the Oval Office, uh, Trump has done more damage in a year than I would say any president ever, period. Um, and then the third, um, just because I think it's such a big issue, um, and there's really nothing anybody can do to prevent it from happening is net neutrality and getting rid of net neutrality. Uh, I think that there are just so many unintended consequences, uh, and intended consequences that are, are, are huge to the new digital economy and digital workforces and just the connectivity of human beings. Um, I think that's phenomenally damaging. Um, the one good thing, uh, this shouldn't come as a surprise, uh, but even the good thing I will critique uh, is recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Um, again, uh, I give him credit for following the law that was written 20 some odd years ago. Uh, I give him credit for recognizing reality that everybody on earth sees as a reality. Um, but I would also say that uh, they screwed up, screwed up the rollout the roll pretty horribly. Uh, and we will be paying that we uh, as Americans and we as Jews and, 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 and Israelis certainly are going to be paying, paying the, uh, the piper on that for a very long time to come. So those are my three worst and one good thing with hesitation. It's hard to argue with any of, with any of those. Uh, the, yeah, I mean, you know, I think the, the net neutrality one is a, is a really good point. And I'll come to my three in a second. But, you know, there are potential legal fixes or delays out there. There are potential legislative fixes. But, but that's a really sharp point. And I wanted, to, I wanted to, to, to just jump on it for a second because at a time when it feels like, I don't know if our listeners get this. I suspect they probably do. But it feels like more portions of our lives are being sort of guided and parceled up and sold by mega conglomerates than ever before. More essential services, more essential infrastructure is being privatized uh, and and run by by you know by megacorps to put it uh, to put it uh, bluntly. Uh, the net was. I mean, it certainly was not a haven of, you know, small providers by any means, but at least it wasn't quite, a, a, it, was, it wasn't 
optimized for the profit of uh, large providers uh, in a way that so many other things are. And and the effects of net neutrality, if it's able, if it's of the net neutrality repeal, if it stands, could be disastrous. Uh, and and are yet another piece of what I would argue is essential infrastructure that has been privatized and parceled up and sold. Uh, another piece of our lives that's been privatized and parceled up and sold. So uh, my three things, I'm going to, you know, I, I are a little less conceptual. I think you you covered the, the conceptual parts, the, you know, the, the, the cultural and structural stuff that I think is really important. So I'm actually going to focus on the three things that I think have done the three areas in which he has done the, the most kind of immediate harm. Uh, and I can't choose amongst the specific policies on this, but the first area is the, his administration's entire approach to immigration uh, has been, uh, I mean, a, a breathtaking combination of uh, performative cruelty and genuine, uh, deep and unadulterated stupidity. Uh, I mean, this is so, I mean, this, this mixed with a good batch of xenophobia, racism. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. I mean, it's all of, it's all, you know, it's, it's a witch's brew of all the worst things in the entire world, as far as I can tell. Uh, Yeah. I mean, and real, real people are going to pay, I have paid and will continue to pay very real costs for this. Uh, It is, it is a monstrously stupid and you know, absurdly inhuman approach to governing, and I'm I'm frankly stupefied and in awe of it every day. Uh, so, and and pick amongst them there. Um, I would all I would say there are a couple of ways that I would put the next one under the heading of of effectively laying waste to the concept of American statecraft uh, and and America's place in the world, which he has done through a variety of mechanisms. And and what I mean by that is yes, certainly the gutting of the State Department. Uh, the total contempt for the concept of diplomacy, all of this other stuff, right? Like that's, that is all that, that definitely features in the indictment, but I mean, in a very, in a much more practical sense, there was an opportunity it was never going to come with this president and it was not going to come with Hillary Clinton, I suspect. Uh, maybe it would, I I don't want to, I don't want to, to rubbish some of the people who were working for her who might've taken us in this direction, but Post Obama, you know, sixteen years into uh, sixteen years into the long war, there was, I think, an opportunity after this administration to look at how not only that you know our, our various the war on terror and our various other conflicts have been pursued were pursued under the Bush administration, but how they were pursued under the Obama administration, and take a take a look at take a look at their effectiveness and in some cases their humanity. Uh, you know, I think about uh, some of the reporting that's gone on about the drone strike program and how collateral damage on the civilian deaths were much, much higher than uh, anyone had estimated before. Uh, and, and there is, you know, the, the entire selling point of that, the entire reason that, that drone strikes were so attractive was the idea that they could be done with precision. I don't want to make this answer is not about drone strikes specifically, but in the absence of that, you know, if that is not the truth, if in fact drone strikes can't be done with the precision that they thought and that we all believed, now, uh, is this in fact a productive tool of, of, you know, of statecraft, if you want to call it that? Is it a productive tool of foreign policy? Or is it a practice that needs to be revisited? And I think there was an opportunity to, with, with a new president post, you know, post Obama, uh, to look at the, to look at some of this stuff, to look at why we're, why we're still in Afghanistan, to look at some of these, to, to look at some of the stuff. Uh, some of our commitments, why it has not gone right, why it has gone wrong, and potentially make what could be a generational shift in the way we pursue national security. Uh, and, and I'm not calling for anything radical necessarily, but when there, there's clearly an on, there was an honest look to be taken. It is absolutely not happening under this president. Uh, the escalation of it's basically escalating all of the worst parts, uh, all of or at least all of the most questionable parts of the previous uh, 16 years of uh, foreign policy. While doing away with all of the good ones, it is taking. It, I mean, to say it's a missed opportunity doesn't begin to describe it. People have died and will die as a result of this. It's a fucking monstrous crime. Um, and then the last one is really easy: this fucking tax cut, generational plunder, apoc- apocalyptically pessimistic. I know this was passed by. This is Trump gets credit for this only in as much as his political capital supported it and he signed the thing. This is really an act of the Republican legislature. But uh, I mean, this is. Uh, it, this is this would put the gilded age to shame, and we all know it. So those are the three things. The only good thing I can think to say about the guy is that he is so chaotically disorganized that he has not been able to pursue his agenda any further. That's the best I can say of him. That's fair. 
That's fair. Uh, th- so the, the genesis of these questions, I was at um, my local watering hole, uh, Ease Bar, for those of you who uh, frequent New York. Um, and an uh, older gentleman was, was sitting near me, and he and his friend were talking about this. And they both they basically structured the conversation, you know, what's some good things that he's done, what are the worst things that he can do, has done. And one of the things that the guy said, and uh, God bless just the, the open sexism, um, but he said... His wife is nice to look at. His daughter is nice to look at. And that, that communications director lady is cute. Jesus, Mary and Joseph, even for a conversation in a bar, that's pretty fucking rich. Yeah. But, uh, you know, at least he was honest about it. There you have it. The state of America of American political discourse and he's bar. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I, I will say we've had much more scholarly conversations there about the Laffer curve and other sorts of things, but, um, Someone else who is not come for the laugher curve, stay for the sexism. Yeah, basically. you're really selling ease here, buddy. Yeah, it's a nice, it's a, it's a nice place. It's, it's not all, it's not all sexism and 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 disgraced conservative economic models. True. Um, good company, good beer, good bartenders, good owners. It's a good place. Um, but we apparently we are all not the only people who are uh, discomforted by the. Uh, weird shit that has happened over the last year. Jeff Flake, or has Frank and I take, have taken to calling him gentleman who looks like he walked into a sheet pane of glass, um, also has some issues with, with the president and gave uh, quite the speech this week, uh, comparing him to Stalin, although not really comparing him to Stalin, comparing some of the things that he's done with the free press to the kinds of things that a totalitarian leader would do. Um, and we thought we'd talk about this just briefly, not because, uh, Flake's speech was unexpected. Uh, he's already said that he's going to plan, he plans on giving several of these over the course of the year, uh, before he leaves the Senate. Um, but we thought we'd revisit, um, one of our favorite, uh, canards, tenants, theories, pillars of modern, of modern yeah. American democratic thought. Yeah. Call yes. it what you will. Uh, but we thought Friends. we'd, we'd, we'd take this as an opportunity to revisit and warn people off about alt centrism. Yes. This is another public service warning, public service advisory. There isn't, there has been an alt centrism outbreak. Uh, if you have, we recommend that you have uh, 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 trash bags or uh, plastic sheeting and duct tape that you duct tape up all of your windows uh, that you uh, put towel, wet towels under your door. Uh, if you have a hazmat suit, please get into it uh, and remain there until we tell you otherwise. Uh, but there has been, without question, there has been an alt-centrism outbreak as the result of uh, Jeff Flake's speech. And it, it is, and it's, I'm sorry to say, a fairly viral one. Right. Uh, and I mean, this has been building for, for uh, the last year overall, um, uh, but we feel that sometimes people get a little confused between what alt-centrism is and what it is not. Um, Hillary Clinton retweeting something that Bill Kristol wrote on Twitter um, is shocking. Uh, I would not necessarily say it, it, it gets towards alt-centrism. Um, it, it might in the sense, oh, not the act of retweeting it itself per se. That's kind the of the reaction right. people had to the retweeting. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's that's a margin. Yeah, that exactly the retweeting itself. God, we're you know what what a hellscape we've gone into that we're talking about a retweet by Hillary Clinton of Bill Crystal on Twitter. Um, this is the other, on a podcast on a podcast. Welcome, God. This is this is shut it down. Shut it down. <laughs> right. If. It, the the reaction to that of you know we can put our differences aside like you know welcome to the resistance Bill like all of this other like again all the point of alt centrism is um, among other tenets we're not going to go back revisit the episode in its entirety we do have an episode that's just devoted entirely to discussing what alt centrism is uh, even if you need a weekly reminder just read whatever David Brooks has written I uh, but the point of alt centrism is it prioritize it mistakes civility of process for actual principle. Right. As long as we can get along, as long as we're civil to each other, you know, as long, you know, when we can find common ground and, and sometimes finding common, sometimes the, the common, there's no point in finding common ground. Sometimes the common ground is not worth holding. Um, sometimes, you know, the civility of process means being open and civil to discussion with people who don't deserve it. One of whom I would argue is Bill Crystal. Right. For a man who's never been right about anything in his, in his entire life. Yeah, and, and when who when he's wrong, that wrongness often has catastrophic consequences that do not rebound on him, and which he refuses to accept. Yeah, I, we we will point to just two: um, the first being the Iraq War, um, and the second being Sarah Palin. 
Uh, and then you can go on from there on things that he's been just horribly wrong about that he more than anyone else pushed for, um, all because his father was uh, an important neoconservative thinker and his claim to fame being the former chief of staff to Dan Quayle. Right. And you can't say fairer than that. Yeah. I don't know how to spell potato. Um, but yeah, I, it's, you know, people who watch morning Joe hear a lot about, uh, alt centrism, um, the reactions to Michael Wolff's book, people kind of got pulled into the idea that uh, we all have to bound together. Again, going back to uh, Benjamin, Benjamin Wittes, the editor-in-chief of uh, the Lawfare blog, um, his whole thing, uh, I believe, uh, hashtag I believe, we, we talked about this a little bit with um, with Noah a couple weeks ago, the associate editor from, from Commentary. Um, yes, it's true that anybody with a brain and morals should be opposed to this president and to his enablers in the Republican party. But that doesn't mean that we have to agree on policy. Oh yeah. I I mean, and that's where I think people start to get very confused. Jeff Flake voted for the tax cut. Hold your fucking applause. Yeah. And voted to gut um, the ACA and just about anything else that Obama has, has done. Um, Bill Crystal uh, again, everybody's favorite new, everybody, every Democrat's new, every resistance member's favorite conservative. Uh, just as yesterday, he tweeted about uh, the FISA reauthorization, saying, um, you know, barely passed uh, through committee. Um, uh, at the cloture vote on, on the floor was, was close, and Democrats largely voted against it. And his comment was something along the lines of, you know, this is why uh, the Republican Party needs to rebuild after Trumpism because Democrats are, you know, horrible. And yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, and another, uh, another aspect of alt centrism and Frank, I know you were itching to talk about this a little bit is, um, well, I'll let you, uh, describe the, um, fetishization of the white American voter, uh, because you had a good, you had a good term for it that I'm now currently forgetting. Okay, it was, yeah, this is related to alt-centrism. It is not necessarily a, fun, let me put it to you this way, it is fetishizing uh, white, white working class and rural white uh, Americans is a symptom, a, a frequent but not necessary symptom of alt-centrism, and it can suggest you are suffering from alt-centrism. They're not quite the same thing. The term, the, the term for the way that the media has covered uh, the white working class, and again, on this point, Advisory, as always on this podcast, white working class is a cultural designation, uh, not an economic one and not a regional one. It refers to rural. Nor uh, a racial one. Nor, well, it is. White, white, white working class is. Well, it is, but it is. White. I mean, it, it is. is well, it is, but it isn't. I mean, it, it, I wouldn't say that there are a great number of minorities in the white working class, but there are and there can be. There is, you're onto a good point there in that there are a number of, uh, of minority demographics that have similar, cult, that share uh, some really important cultural attitudes and whose voting behavior can be predicted, although not as strongly by the direction of the travel, by the, by the direction of political direction of travel of the white working class. Yeah. That's a, that's a, that's a solid point. Yeah. Uh, but within this context, it is within the context that we're talking about it for this, the way that these folks are covered, uh, it is, it is an exclusively white phenomenon. And, the the term and it's it's not mine. Uh, I can't. I don't know who created this concept, but the idea is. But it's called a Cletus Safari, um, and it is when a, uh, a a media outlet, usually from one of the coasts, sends someone into Trumpland uh, to uh, gawk at the locals and try and figure out what is happening here, and then they come back. And this this came up in the context of the uh, the article we talked about last week in Politico that was about Sherry Bustos's report on uh, rural Democrats and. Is there a place for them in the party and so forth? Uh, and, and we got some good feedback from a few sources on this. And I, I want to thank the folks who, uh, you know, who came to us on this because I, I would say that our coverage of that was, our coverage of that article was incomplete in the sense that, and in the sense that we talked about its content. We didn't actually talk about what the article and articles like it mean. The problem with these Cletus safaris is they're always, they're, they're framed in one of two ways. Uh, Trump voters, they're just like you. The worst example of which was the friendly Nazi piece in the New York Times, which I, I still can only assume was the result of some kind of ethylene gas leak. Or, uh, you know, is there a place for some, essentially what it boils down to is 
you know, is there a place for white for you know for for white Americans in the Democratic Party? That's if you actually strip it down to that's kind of what it amounts to, uh, and and it assumes. Last week we talked about the essential phenomenon that as a that a, as a political party, Democrats need to be able to tell two stories: one about the whole country, how America hasn't worked for some people, how we'll get it working for everyone again, and the other, equally important, how we will expand the American dream to communities to whom it had previously not been extended before. That's the dignity and opportunity that's meant to come with America. And those, you know, and those communities are communities of color, uh, women, uh, you know, uh, uh, repressed sexual minorities and so forth uh, and so forth, right? Those are the, these are the groups that we tend to talk about. If you don't have, if you're missing one of those narratives, one of those stories, and they're both really important, then it looks like the other one is all you care about. And this is one of the problems that Bernie Sanders supporters get into with, uh, you know, with, you know, with folks who within the Democratic Party who are not Sanders supporters is that because his message was so oriented around economic equality, income inequality, uh, all of the stuff that he talks about, it looks understandably like he just flat doesn't care about extending the American dream of dignity and opportunity to previously repressed communities to or currently repressed communities. And alternatively, if you don't have a clear, solid narrative on the first point, and you are talking about and about rep- about increasing representation and expanding the democratic, expanding expanding the American dream to repressed communities, it looks like that's all you care about at the expense of the previous one. We've talked about that. That's what's happening here. And the problem with the way that with the problem with Cletus Safaris is that it suggests and fetish it suggests that the first that the first one is all that matters. Uh, that the opinion and that the opinion of white that winning back white America is like that is that's what we need to, that that is figuring out what went wrong in white America is somehow figuring out is about figuring out what went wrong with the in white America meaning the white working class is somehow what went wrong in the Democratic Party that that's all that that is the primary purpose of the Democratic Party is to figure that out and get it right again um, and it it elevates this community and these voters past well past their due and in attempting and this is my this is where we come around to the alt centrism point in attempting to find it can lead you to a spot of this how can we, to a place where you're asking this question how can we make a party that is at that is that it takes as its central core the expansion of the dream of dignity and opportunity for every american including and especially those who have previously had it denied them, how can we make that party a more welcoming place for out-and-out, dyed-in-the-wool racists? And if you are asking yourself that question as if that, is, as if that problem is someone's to solve other than the, di- than the dyed-in-the-wool racists, you may be guilty of alt-centrism because you, are extent- because you are trying to find, you're trying to impose a civility of process and fetishizing common for the finding of common ground and agreement on communities that on people that frankly don't deserve it. So that's, that's where alt centrism comes into that discussion that we had last week. Yep. I don't know that there's anything to add to that. Um, but be on the lookout because between Jeff Flake's speech, uh, the, um, likely shutdown of the government, um, tomorrow, uh, as of now, Thursday at noon, uh, it looks almost for certain that the government will be shutting down, um, yeah, you're going to hear yeah. a lot that will get on board with alt centrism. Yeah. Uh, you're going to hear some alt centrist bullshit out there. Be warned friends. Take yeah. up your windows. I would say the, the, the final thing to keep in mind is that there is a monumental difference between a never Trumper and, um, your friend. <laughs> yes. Yes, that is correct. As we have said before, sometimes the enemy of my enemy is just a psychopath. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of um, psychopathy, speaking of psycho- psychopathy, um, let's look towards Kentucky, um, yes. where Frank, you've done some political work, and uh, one of our common favorite shows, uh, Justified, w- w- was filmed. Um, and Kentucky, I think, played a starring role in the show. Actually, yeah, um, it, was a, it was a character in many respects, like Baltimore and The Wire, and mm-hmm. although the the show, to be clear, was actually shot in California. Yeah. Um, this week, or last week, or sorry, sometime in the last two weeks, um, the governor of Kentucky has placed new requirements on uh, Medicaid recipients um, and the idea that they need to um, demonstrate uh, 
the desire to work or the attempt to work um, in order to qualify for Medicaid. Um, and well, there's theories you can um, agree with and there are policies you can disagree with that would be the policies on those theories. And this is kind of one of them. Um, and to me, this is an example, the whole idea of welfare queens and people who take advantage of Medicaid, this to me really represents one of the fundamental philosophical differences between Republicans and Democrats. So whereas, yeah, perhaps there was one person who took so much advantage of welfare that they managed to buy a Cadillac, um, Republicans look at that and say, cancel the whole program. One person took advantage of it. Uh, Democrats look at that and say, well, one person we didn't catch, but look at all these people that it's actually helping. Um, and, and to me, that's a fundamental difference um, where the, the exception becomes the rule uh, to a large degree to a large degree. And, uh, that factors a lot into this idea of, um, meritocracy, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, particularly with this new thing in Kentucky. No, that's absolutely right. It's uh, the Medicaid, the, it is, I, there is, I think a sort of general sense that what we don't want is a welfare state that is, um, that traps people in cycles of dependence and not being able to and not and not being able to uh, you know to exercise not being able or inclined to exercise their own agency and make the most of themselves. That's a that's a sort of generally agreed American principle. You find that elsewhere, and and how you define that welfare state is, I mean, is the subject of enormous <laughs> dispute on the left. In part because there are places where uh, you know certainly we you know it's, it's easy to get into some sort of Nordic socialist policy porn here but you know if you sort of look at Norway or Sweden or some of the other you know some of the what we would call the welfare states Denmark that have been set up in Nordic states uh, where the, the government has a very large hand in, in providing uh, services and, uh, and and in some cases direct financial support to citizens um, you know the I mean to us that would look like a, a really really aggressive and generous welfare state and yet what we do not find are cycles of dependence in those states and you know the Norwegians and Swedes and Danes just you know sit around all day you know drinking schnapps and uh, you know eating rotten fish and uh, you know and living off the government dole it's quite the opposite these are some very very vigorous economies but to get back to Kentucky Medicaid, not a particularly vigorous economy, not a particular, and that's a, that's an incredibly good point. Like we are not talking about a super wealthy state here by any stretch of the imagination. As much bourbon as we drink, it's not helping we've been most people in Kentucky. Level goddamned best, just slugging back, you know, Town yeah. Branch and Rowan's Creek, and just I mean, you know, just just you know, uh, Knob Creek straight out of the goddamn bottle, and has it you know, and yet has it improved employment in that state? Well, who's to say? The only option we have is to continue on this policy uh, until either every Kentuckian is employed or uh, we are no longer able to do so, whichever comes first. Uh, I know which way the smart way is to bet on that. Mm -hmm. The concern about what's happening with Medicaid in Kentucky is this is the first time that Medicaid, which is considered, you know, essentially the, like, the, the absolute stopgap. Like if you are, if you are indigent, if you're, you know, if you're poor, you should have health care. It is, I mean, you're talking about cutting the welfare state cutting the fat off of it, cutting the muscle off of it, now cutting into the bone, you will not die of sickness because you're poor. That's, that's the, the biggest promise, the, like, the most essential promise that, that I, I would argue that any modern state can make. This is beginning to renege on that promise. And the idea being you have to demonstrate that you are in work, that you're looking for work, that you're in training, that you're doing 80 hours per month of some kind of activity related to employment in order to qualify for Medicaid. Or you can get a different kind of... Uh, or you can get a different kind of waiver. There are a number of ways to get oh, to to retain your Medicaid, uh, in you know even in the face of these new requirements. Uh, but what we have found with any government system, and, the, and a good example of this is voting, is any objection whatsoever, any obstacle whatsoever to be to engaging with a government institution in some way. The more obstacles you put up, the more people you're going to shave off. It just happens. The rules will be misapplied. Uh, often you're dealing with people who are not in particularly good health because, again, this is health care. Uh, and as a result, they may miss deadlines, uh, may be hard for them. Some, some of the folks who use Medicaid, uh, their Medicaid is there because they have mental illnesses. It's a very, very hard. You know, they're not sufficiently organized to be and able to. Generally, when you're dealing with the, the poor, you're also dealing with a much 
lower education level. Sure. Education which doesn't help with filling out forms and following timelines. Education may come into this. And the other part of it that's relevant is, uh, you know, and or you may be dealing with communities that are, that don't have a lot of experience working with bureaucracies and the experience they have working with bureaucracies has been pretty bad. So, and this is where it really comes into not just the work requirements, but also what are called lockouts. Uh, and the lockouts are you have to update your status every few months. You have to it basically puts up a lot of bureaucracy between Medicaid recipients and actually getting their health care. And again, the whole purpose of these lockouts is not to the argument that that uh, the governor of Kentucky and the Republicans would make about this is that it's you know it's is that if you if you want to receive money from the public for your health care or for anything else, you should be able to fill out some forms. It seems simple, but it is in fact a really bad faith argument for the introduction of obstacles that will allow that to allow them to throw people off of Medicare. And there are estimates out there that at least fifteen percent of Kentucky's Medicare or Medicaid, I should say, Medicaid recipient uh, population is going to be turfed off of this within uh, the next five years. That's a hundred thousand people. Uh, this is, again, a, a staggering combination of uh, stupidity and cruelty, are two of our favorite things, uh, cousins to malice and incompetence, the guiding principles of this administration. And it's, it is relevant, and, and I think the whole thing, the genesis of this, and, I, and, I'll, and I'll close with this, the genesis of this is an American concept of meritocracy, how we have sort of curdled the idea of meritocracy, because Americans... Interestingly enough, if you put a Brit and an American on, on, you know, on truth serum or whatever, if you get us really right down to it, culturally, Britain has made a lot of progress on this, but culturally, I think you would find that the Brits would recognize that the type of wealth that is admired and liked in Britain is old wealth. You come from old status, right? Like you've, you've, you've yeah. Well, had money for a long time. You know, you come from it. You know how to wear it. You know how to use it. You're yeah, Downton Abbey shit. You're established. Yeah, exactly. You're established. Downton Abbey, exactly. In America, we love that new money smell. There are parcels of the country where, you know, they try to recreate the old system and so forth. You know, you find these kind of like Brahmins in New, in new England and so forth, but you know, Virginia and other places trying desperately to recreate a, you know, trying desperately to recreate an absurd and obsolete uh, aristocracy. But for the most part, Americans love the myth of the self, the self-made person or the reality of a self-made person. You know, you come from nothing, you earn your own, you earn your own money. And in that we see virtue. And in that we see, you know, the idea is with your, your wealth, that you have earned for yourself confers upon you a moral superiority uh, and or a, a human worth. The flip side, and and to the extent, and I'm, I'm I want to be guarded here, but to the extent that that supports and enshrines the value of personal agency and how Americans see themselves and how we see you know how we see each other, I think that it has virtue in that limited extent. But the flip side to it is, if you're poor, it's your own fault and you must be trash. That's that's the that's the essence of this, and this, and you know, that's the and that that's the flip side of that, and that's where this this requirement comes from. If you're poor, it's your own goddamn fault. We're not going to. We will. I mean, this is some Ebenezer Scrooge shit. We will. You know, are there no workhouses? Are there no prisons? Better they die than de- and decrease the surplus surplus population. If you're sick and indigent and having difficulty filling out forms, the state of Kentucky will let you die. Will let you get sick and die before uh, before they'll before they'll help you it is more important to them that you not get health care than essentially any other possible goal uh, and you know and that's that that's where this thing comes from and this looks to me like the front end of uh, of a larger agenda that we may see rolling out across states in the near future yeah and and we know that you know this this is uh one of paul ryan's you know, drinking game fantasies uh, from college is to gut medicaid um, and the Republicans, Republicans in general, conservatives in general, I mean, the, the, the social state and, and, and the welfare state, these are huge, huge issues that they, that they disdain uh, with the idea, as Frank just said, that um, whereas Democrats look at things and, and kind of say all things considered equal, everybody should be able to get ahead, but not all things are equal because people come from different places and different places offer different education values, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Republicans say, nope, everybody's the same. Everybody's an American. Everybody should be able to make it if they work hard. Um, but as we've said many, many times on this podcast, uh, A, the American system is broken. It no longer exists as you work hard, you play by the rules, you get ahead. Um, and two, and more importantly, that the difficulty of breaking out is getting even more complicated and challenging um, as uh, um, income inequality continues and as the economy continues to change and uh, low-skill, low-education jobs uh, vanish. 
Yeah, exactly. We are let I me mean, social mobility has decreased, not increased uh, generationally. And, and this yeah, is there. And the way that we fix that, this is, and that, you know, the way that, uh, you know, Medicaid is relevant to that. It's not central to that, but, but you're not going to fix any of this stuff, any of this stuff by taking away, uh, by taking away the healthcare, by taking away healthcare for poor people. That's just, yeah. it, it's just like that, that is not the way to elevate anyone. Yeah. Um, uh, we'll turn off of this in a second, but there was, there was a statistic that I saw recently um, that in 2017, the 500 wealthiest people on earth added a collective trillion dollars to their fortunes. Um, and if you're wondering, that does work out to $2.7 billion a day. 500 people, trillion dollars more than they had. So yeah, this is some gilded age shit. And, and one of the things politically for us as progressives to look at, and you know, this is not an original thought, but it is becoming increasingly clear that the model for us in terms of how we organize and how we think about the structural fight that we face now is not the recent past, but the much more distant past as progressives organized and fought back against the Gilded Age. I mean, this is much, we are politically at a moment structurally that is much closer to the end of the 19th century with wealth concentrated in the hands of very, very few people who effectively own everything and almost everyone. Right. In a meaningful way. Yeah. And I, you know, the argument that will continue to happen in the Democratic Party is there's the Bernie approach where kind of burn it all down and everybody gets a pony, or there's not that option. And I don't, I still, and we talked about this last week, I don't know that Democrats have figured out what that other option is. Yeah, that's, that's right. And that's going to be our, that's our continued, not just our, uh, you know, our, you know, our, our brain space needs to be spent on that in terms of thinking about our policy options, but there's a little bit of soul searching there as well. Yeah. I mean, this is some of what the better deal comes from that kind of idea. Uh, but let's turn to, uh, something else that we've been chatting for a while. Um, you know, Frank and I, at various times over the last few weeks, months, we've prognosticated and and um, 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 crystal ball viewed what's going to happen in the 2018 election. Um, and I had a kind of a terrifying thought this morning um, after hearing uh, some uh, listening to NPR this morning. Um, um, they they their latest poll that they did with PBS, uh, done by the Marist Institute. Um, uh, they had a seven point difference on the generic ballot where Frank and I have been talking about differences of almost up to 17 points at, at various points on various polls. Uh, but the reality that hit me and I, I am not as optimistic as Frank is on the house, as you know, that, um, as everyone who listens should know by now, um, I had the thought that, oh shit, what happens if Democrats really do have the wave election and Republicans are left with six weeks in 2018 to just, legislate the shit out of the economy, the government, everything they could possibly do with the realization that they may not be back in power for quite some time because Donald Trump has so thoroughly fucked them up. It's a great question. And I think we're into the realm, a little bit of fan fiction here, but it is worth thinking a little bit about what these people might do uh, if they've lost, like what is the wish list? Like the stuff that we absolutely have to get done. You know, the one that can, and, and this is a long laundry list that I don't want to get into because among other things, it's horrifying and depressing, but the one that can, that would concern me most actually, and I'm surprised they haven't moved on it yet in a meaningful way uh, is some attempt federally to impose uh, new practices on, uh, on the execution of voting in States. Right now, states the execution of voting in states belongs to is governed by uh, secretaries of state. Uh, so this is why you have a patchwork of fifty different approaches to how when people are allowed to vote, what kind of ID they need to show, when voting hours are, and so on and so forth. And you have things from states where it's very easy to vote; you can vote in person for weeks in advance. You know, it's easy to get a, it's easy to get a uh, you know an absentee ballot. Uh, Places place like Oregon, where the whole thing is postal ballot. Uh, and have, they have a much higher turnout, actually. Uh, it takes place over the course of several weeks. So, you know, there, there are 50 different approaches to how you vote. I am a little bit surprised that we haven't seen an attempt to impose some kind of federal restriction in new voting rights. And then feds have been able to do that. This is, generally speaking, has been a state's, state's rights issue, largely in a positive way. Voting rights have not always have been a state's rights issue in a very negative way in the past. Uh, pre-civil rights there, you know, the state's rights, the state's ability to govern how they, uh, and guide how people vote were used to disenfranchise black Americans in large numbers. Uh, and, uh, as a result that has been there, there is some precedent for federalizing, uh, how states execute, uh, how states, uh, uh, the Supreme court overturned a little bit of that recently. Yeah. 
Yeah. So this, and this is the point, there has been a certain amount of gray area on the, yeah, exactly. There's been a certain amount of gray area. So there is some precedent on federalizing this stuff. I am surprised that we have not seen either an attempt to pass a piece of federal legislation or God forbid, some kind of constitutional amendment, although they don't have the majority to do that. Uh, but there has not been some effort to impose uh, a reasonably draconian system of identification and voting rules uh, on a national scale. Because my assumption has always yeah. been having essentially beaten the so-called Obama, led the Obama coalition on what amounts to a technicality in 2016, uh, the Republican majority would then attempt to legislate it out of existence. Uh, I believe that is still their plan and it would not, I don't know if they could pull it together on a short term, but if it was just like you guys can do, if they can do one thing and one thing only, uh, you know, the clock is ticking down. What's the one thing? I think that would be pretty high on their list. Right. Yeah. Uh, I also think um, uh, one of the reasons that uh, I hope one of the reasons that Schumer and Pelosi are, are fighting so hard for the immigration um, on, on this current, you know, this week um, is fear that if they don't, and this does turn into, you know, Wednesday, the day after election day, um, 11 months from now, 10 months from now, um, that could be something also that that Republicans could go after very hard. Yeah, um, that's a real possibility too. Because you're going to be looking at very much a situation where Tom Cotton goes from being somebody that nobody likes, kind of like Ted Cruz, uh, to uh, Tom Cotton being um, uh, quite an important player in the Republican Party and a leader on Capitol Hill, which is terrifying. God, that's and, an awful thought. And I had the thought of, uh, what, what was uh, what was Charles Pierce's line? Uh, um, Bobble necks slapdick yes i think that's what charlie pierce called tom cotton and arguably the greatest epithet ever rendered yeah including um, achilles the matchless runner yeah um i mean he he's a, a, a guy. i mean he, he's he's just the worst um for a whole host of varieties um frank uh you and i and the commodore wrote a um a only partially tongue-in-cheek op-ed uh, about him about him in his follow-up uh, letter to his um borderline um, Logan Act defying letter to the Ayatollahs. Um, bobble-throated slapdick. Yeah, that was, that was the line. Um, I mean, he, he's, he is the future uh, right now of the Republican Party. Um, and I, I, for one, almost view a Democratic loss in 2018, um, not taking the House, not taking the Senate, but beating Tom Cotton two years from, uh, two years hence, uh, a worthwhile um, initiative. Oh, it's essential, and partly because he is the champion. What I, you know, what I was going on about earlier, uh, the the way that we speak, the way that Republicans speak meritocracy in a way that is curdled and corrupt and completely contrary to, uh, to you know, to the to any value that might actually be found in the in the way that we see meritocracy. Cotton speaks that language fluently. I mean, he is their absolute champion for it. Yeah, and um, he, you know, he. There, there are uh, any number of, of veterans in Congress now, uh, any number of veterans running um, th this fall. Few of them wave around their military experience the way Tom Cotton does as a catch-all, cover-all kind of um, invincibility cloak um, that no one can, can criticize him because he served in the military. Um, it's it's corrupt and horrifying and honestly like that we have not uh you know granted uh tom cotton an award from venal pack before is just an omission on our part like that's, yeah. that's a clerical error he might I mean, he'd he be prior by what like 17 he beat him like a mule like it, it yeah. was it, it was not pretty but uh yeah, if folk if folks want to look towards something to uh, um try to recruit a good candidate and dump a whole lot of money into a state um arkansas is one to look at because uh, Tom Cotton is all evil all the time. Um, I don't know that we were necessarily going to um, call attention to Venal Pack this week, but maybe we should. Um, uh, the, you know, the front from the war on the war on corruption. Um, we will shine the spotlight on the bobble-throated slapdick from Arkansas, Tom Congratulations, Cotton. Congratulations, Tom Cotton. You are a truly venal human being. Yeah, I mean, we'll look back to he uh, with he uh, held up uh, the nomination of, of a Obama nominee uh, in spite um, to the point that the woman died. Yes. For yeah. spite. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, I mean, Grant, and, and, and when I say the other thing that he's really good at, you know, I mean, the credit we're due is this guy is not only good at talking about meritocracy in the way that uh, that that Republicans like. And again, it's a way that is, you know, corrupt and sour and awful, but also he's super good at dog whistle. Yeah. Um, I mean, that is just I mean, he he knows what programs he supports and why, you know, and is able to articulate those reasons. Uh, in the kind of sub, you know, the, you know, in in just the right tone of dog whistle, it's truly disgusting and horrifying. God, yeah. yeah. I mean, this guy is like they should be the chairman of Venal Pack. I don't know why we haven't given it to him before. True. Um, and if folks want to dig into Tom Cotton a little more, there was a pretty good uh, New Yorker article um, uh, about him that he participated in um, from several months ago. I I, th- I, th- I think it was Jeff Tubin, but I'm, I'm not 100 certain on that. Um, all right. So Frank, before, um, we, we close this out, why don't we take, um, a quick hop, skip and a jump over to, um, ye old London, um, for a quick update on what's going on in, uh, UK politics. Sure. And this will make this one brief because it's primarily technical, but I want, but it highlights a, a worthy point. So the Labour Party of Great Britain and Northern Ireland is governed by an entity called the National Executive Committee. It's essentially a board of directors that uh, oversees its operations and policies. Uh, so there's the leader of the Labour Party, there's the NEC, who is Jeremy Corbyn, there's the NEC, and then the Labour Party itself is administered uh, by uh, a director, uh, a general secretary, as he's called, named Ian McNichol. And the NEC had been largely not insulated that would be wrong but had not been taken over by uh, the corbyn wing of the labor party uh for most of corbyn's leadership uh it had it had remained more centrist or rightist depending on who you ask the labor party uh, in recent elections that changed uh the corbynite uh section of the segment of the labor party uh which go by corbynistas there's also an uh, there's also a, a a technical organizational name for them it's called momentum it's the kind of Political, uh, the you know the the organizing wing of of uh, of the Corbynite part of the Labour Party. Uh, they that is have, a gloriously disgusting political term for uh, for an organization, right? They have a uh, yeah, exactly. They have a uh, majority on the National Executive Committee, which basically means now that functionally the party, well, it is not immediately run you know, from top to bottom by Corbynistas, among other things, Ian McNichol is not a, the general secretary of the party is not a Corbynista. He was hired long before Corbyn. Uh, but they are now effectively in charge. One of the last breaks on Corbyn, on the power of Corbyn and, Cor- and people and, and his inner circle has been, has, uh, has ended. Uh, and, and there will be, there, there are already changes being made and there'll be more changes to come. One of which is the potential for the party to adopt a policy whereby all sitting labor MPs are autom- automatically face reselection. I won't get into the technical detail of it, but right now, if you're a sitting labor MP, it is very easy for you to be automatically renominated by by your constituency. So you, you're sitting labor MP, you're an incumbent, you basically automatically become the incumbent unless you face, in order to deselect a labor MP, which is to say, we're you know you're we're we're going to we're, you are no longer automatically the constituency's choice to represent the Labor Party at the next general election. Uh, there really has to be a coordinated campaign of weeks uh, that can often take weeks, where someone makes first a case that you specifically should be deselected, and then you can stand again, and then there's a gen- and then there's an election amongst uh, in which the sitting candidate. So it's very very in which the sitting candidate can be elected. Very very hard to get rid of. A sitting candidate, except in cases of, uh, you know, gross and public malfeasance, that's usually what brings. What's usually what precipitates these things. Then people tend to resign before that happens. Automatic reselection would mean that it was just an, you know, there's an there's an or sorry not automatic reselection but uh, yeah automatic reselection uh, would mean that there is or automatic deselection as some people call it means that it would automatically go to a vote. Uh, that uh, the, that the constituency labor parties, which again is the unit that votes on the members who vote on whether or not someone will be their will be their candidate to be an MP, uh, it would automatically come to a vote. People could stand. Uh, it would be so rather than requiring a long campaign against an individual MP saying this person should be deselected, that vote would just happen naturally. And a lot of uh, constituency labor parties have been. 
taken over would be a word, whether you see that as a pejorative or whether you see that as a good thing, depends on which side of the aisle you sit on, but have been taken over by uh, an upswing of Corbynistas. A lot of, there have been a, an, an influx of new members who agree with Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, there are there's a, a there's a background chess game that's being played within different uh, within different unions to get their members and their local branches certified to be part of those conversations. Some of them are pro Corbin, some of them not so much. I won't get into the detail of that, but all that I'm saying is we could face within the before the next general election a situation where a large number of incumbent Labour MPs uh, who are not Corbinites are uh, are automatically put up before their constituencies who have to essentially ratify their candidacy and they may lose that candidacy and be replaced by Corbynite MPs or Corbynite candidates. This could precipitate a civil war within the party that the cold war of that is already happening. Uh, it could precipitate and then, but, but ultimately I, I think it probably would be, Less the absolute massacre or the absolute cull uh, of Blairite and centrist MPs that some of the Corbyn folks would like, uh, but it would it would substantially alter the configuration of the Labour Party in favor of uh, you know of, of Corbyn and his vision for what the party should be, and then they would head into the next general election with a much more left wing party in candidates as well as in leadership and policy. Uh, and that, that depending on how you view it, uh, could precipitate a very real crisis for the party in terms of its governing power uh, and put them in a position. If you're Corbin and Corbinites, you think that puts you in the position to, to finally win, to throw off the shackles of uh, neoliberal Blairitism and, and, you know, and win the election in the way that you want to. Maybe that's true. Uh, there is also a very good case to be made that that would cause them to lose some marginal constituencies and 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 really and lose an election that at the next time really should be theirs. So, I bring this up now because sometimes because sometimes these political crises start quietly and years in advance. And I think what I think the beginning of the next crisis for for progressivism on that side of the Atlantic has just happened. All right, so we'll, we'll close this out. Um, Frank, we really do need to work on getting a guest for next week so that it's not just you and me talking the whole time. Um, but uh, in the meantime, we're just giving we're, the people what they want, Ellie. Yeah, we're just giving just the, the people exactly what they want. Voices. Yeah, the dosset dosset tones. Mm-hmm. Um, well, thank you all for joining us. Um, please do subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Um, those ratings really do help, and obviously the subscription numbers are incredibly important. And follow us on Twitter at, at @takingship, and that's ship with a P, as in cephalogy. Um, you can also follow me at Ellie Jacobs and uh, Frank at, at Frank Spring. Uh, we're very easy that way. No creativity here. Um, with that, Frank, where are we headed this week? This week, we take ship for Colorado, which will take some doing, but you can get there by river, uh, where the state's Parks and Wildlife Service recently terminated a program uh, where it provided free deer and other game meat. So free venison and the meat of other uh, game animals to qualifying recipients. So you could get basically the Parks and Wildlife Service would turn up and give you an elk burger if you qualified. From an article, uh, the free program took deer, elk, bear, and mountain lion meat from illegal hunting operations, roadkill, or conflict animals, uh, and processed it and gave it to those who qualified for reasons like low income or disabilities. Uh, This program of giving free game meat was ended because of budget cuts. First, this is just a shame. Second, it sounds like there's a supply of illegally shot cougar and truck-struck mule deer meat going spare and taking ship's empire of fast food franchises based on dubious meat products, which includes the hot doge and the salsicha uh, selfie stick, isn't going to supply itself. Uh, There's an opportunity here. So, friends, uh, we take ship now for Colorado and some cheap illegal game meat. Take care, everybody.